All right, let's just open in prayer, and then uh, we'll undertake. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you once again so much for your grace, grace upon grace, and you have blessed us so much that uh, we don't even understand how uh, the degree to which you orchestrate events in our in our hearts and our lives such that we would be drawn unto you and that you would uh, compel us uh, to to love and obedience evermore as we become conformed into Christ likeness thank you so much for who you are what you have done the the wisdom and the truth that you've provided to us in your holy word your bible and also by way of your holy spirit dwelling within each and every believer to help empower us to live the lives that you've called us to live so we thank you for these things impress them these truths upon our hearts and our minds and help us come away refreshed motivated encouraged and uh just out of love and obedience to you, want, seeking to desire to be uh, good, godly children that are holy and pleasing to you as a, as a loving response for all you have done for us. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so a few lessons ago, we, uh, we addressed this a change of kingdoms concept we saw how God has delivered us out of the kingdom of sin and darkness and, and, and evil and uh, that realm into which we were born when we were born. And we've been transformed, we've been uh, re- relieved, released, purchased, and through union with Christ in his death, we now belong to another kingdom. So we were slaves to sin, as we know, and in slavery, uh, we committed sins, and we developed sinful habits, um, regardless of how, you know, in quotation marks, good we were. And there are good people that are out there, but they are also, uh, if they're not saved, they're not truly good. They're, they're, they have a veneer or they've got certain uh, personality traits and characteristics that the world lauds, that the world lifts up and, and recognizes being desirable. But in God's eyes, unless you've been born again, unless you come to saving faith, uh, you're not truly good. But And so Jesus Christ came into the sinful world and he took our place on Calvary and he died to sin, and through our union with Jesus on the cross, we too died to sin, and we examine that in a fair amount of detail. So we're freed now from sin's reign. We're no longer slaves to sin, and we are to count on this particular fact that we're no longer slaves to sin, that we can now resist sin and that it does no it no longer reigns in our mortal bodies as it once did those chains have been broken in the last lesson or so we saw how despite this truth this reality that it, that we understand theologically to be the, the fact 
we also recognize at the same time that sin still lives within us, right? It wages its guerrilla warfare, if you will, through evil desires and deceiving our minds, even while we desire with new affections and this new heart with which we've been given and gifted. We want to do that, which is holy and pleasing to God, by and large. I mean, we still fall even short of that desire oftentimes, and we give in. But the reality is that we still stumble, and we do still yet fall. And, you're, and you ask the question, so what good does it do, uh, you, you may ask, to be told that the war with sin has been won with Christ and his death on the cross if you're still harassed and, and often defeated by sin in your daily life and in your daily living. You know, you still, um, you still struggle with anger. You still struggle with lust. You still struggle with maybe an addiction. You still struggle with frustration or depression, whatever it is. And to experience everyday practical holiness, we have to accept the fact that God in his infinite wisdom has seen fit to actually allow this daily battle with indwelling sin, right? We, we have to we recognize that, I mean, at some intellectual level, that God could, the minute we come to saving faith and he places a new heart within us, he could in that moment snatch us out Harpazo, I believe, you know, harpoon us out like the, the rapture and take us out from this world and our mission is done, you know, where our function on this world is complete and we no longer see people and it could be an instantaneous thing. But we know by fact, by experience and in the scripture that God allows us to continue on, that there is a struggle, that we continue to wrestle, uh, not against uh, flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces that are in the heavenly realm. So God, however, in his grace, even though he doesn't take us out of our pressure cooker world and, the, and sin and, and all the vicissitudes of life and, and the decay and destruction that sin and evil have wrought in this world, nevertheless, he doesn't leave us helpless and he doesn't leave us alone. The good news is that just as he has delivered us, from the overall reign of sin, so he has also made provision for us to win this daily battle that we have to engage in. And so this brings us to the second point in Romans 11 uh, that we are to count on and to keep before us. And so just to refresh your memory on that, in Romans 6, uh, 11, and I'll just start in verse 8, just so that we re-anchor that segment. Paul writes to the Roman church there, he says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so we're reminded of this fact that we are not only dead to sin now, but we are also alive to God. And we've not only been delivered from the dominion of darkness, but we have also been brought into the kingdom of Christ. And so Paul has said that we are now actually in Romans 6.18, he goes on to say that we are now slaves again 
but we are now slaves to righteousness, not slaves to sin and its evil desires. So God does not leave us in this neutral zone. He takes us out of slavery, takes us out of prison, the dungeon, if you will. It flames with light. You come to saving faith. The, you know, your eyes are open. You, your eyes discern, the, the diffuse, the, the quickening ray of, of, of salvation, and you get taken out of the dungeon of sin, and you're led out by the hand by God up the stairs and into and out the doors and into the sunshine for the very first time. So he delivers us from sin's reign and into the reign of his son. So what is the significance then of being alive unto God? How does this help us in our pursuit of holiness? Well, for one thing, it means that we are actually united with Christ in all his power, right? When we think about that, the Bible assures us that once we've been released from slavery to sin and we are now slaves to righteousness, we are united with Christ, we have and can and do enjoy many, many benefits, many blessings as a result of that. It is certainly true that we cannot live a holy life on our own strength. And Christianity is not a do-it-yourself kind of thing. It's not a religion that's based on, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and gut it out and, you know, work hard, strive hard. The attitude actually in Paul, by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, verses 11 to 13, is he's talking about active contentment and resting in Christ. I'll just read that segment for you there in Philippians 4, verses 11 to 13. He says, Paul writes to the Philippian church, he says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. This is, this is the prayer. This should be the statement of our own hearts as we kind of relate to Paul and what's going on as we walk through our Christian walk. He says, I, I, I don't speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I, I know how to get along with humble means, and many of us have experienced humble means throughout our lives. And I also know how to live in prosperity, so he can embrace that as, as a blessing from God. He says, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul here is actually writing about the fact that he's learned to be content whenever, whatever the circumstances that he finds himself in, whether in plenty or in want, whether well-fed or whether he's hungry, there's a sense in which his life and our lives too ought to rest and be content. He says he can respond this way through Christ who gives him strength. That's his ability. Because if it was left to us, we'd grumble, mumble, complain, moan and groan continually when we were on the opposite of the abundance and the prosperity side. Whenever we are, you know, when we're being run down, when we're being pressed, when we're sick, when we're poor, uh, whatever, you know, some unexpected expense comes, our natural response to that in our flesh is to grumble and complain. But Paul is saying, no, I can be actually content in those circumstances. Why? 
through Christ who gives him strength. And so through Christ who gives us strength, we too can respond in the same or similar manner. Our reactions to circumstances are a part of our walk of holiness. And, and, and the thing is, we know that holiness ought not to be, and certainly isn't, a series of do's and don'ts. You don't get a check sheet when you become a Christian, and it doesn't say, do this, you know, check, 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 and avoid this, you know, no, don't do that, don't talk about it sort of thing, right? It's not a series of do's and don'ts, but rather it's conformity to the character of God and obedience to his will. So acceptance, accepting with contentment, whatever the circumstances God allows for us, for you, for me, is very much a part of our holy walk. It's a part of our calling in Christ to bear up under whatever it is that we're experiencing so that we can rest in, with assurance in God's goodness and his grace for us. And there's a power that transcends even our own understanding and comprehension in terms of, I ought to be really angry and frustrated at this. But for some reason, I can rest. I can, I can, I can be okay. I can be at peace with this. But Paul, knows, you know, notice too that Paul said that he could respond in contentment because Christ gave him the strength to do so. We see this again where Paul says as he prays that the Colossians would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you might have great endurance and patience. And that's Colossians 1.11. So where do endurance and patience actually come from? Well, they come as we are strengthened with God's power. Consider another prayer that Paul describes in his, letters to the, his letter to the Ephesians. He said he was praying for them. So he's, he's praying that out of his glorious riches, God, Christ's glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. That's Ephesians 3.16. And he concludes this particular prayer by acknowledging that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. That's Ephesians 3.20. So this is the first implication that we should grasp of being alive unto God. And that is that we are united with the one who is at work in, in us to strengthen us with his mighty power. So we have access to, and we actually, by way of the Holy Spirit, are, are kind of plugged into, if you will, the enormous power that Jesus Christ himself has and contains. We have all known that awful sense of hopelessness that is caused by sin's power, and we've resolved scores of times never to give in to a particular temptation, and yet we do. And then we start to think, well, I might as well just give up. I can never overcome that particular sin. I think you can all relate to that. I'm sure there's probably many of you here, if not all of you, which struggle with one sin or a series of sins time and time again. This is true that in ourselves we cannot overcome that particular sin. But we are alive to God, united to him who strengthens us, right, through Christ, with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And by reckoning on this fact, that is counting on it to be true, 
embracing that reality, embracing that truth, we will experience the strength that we need to fight any particular temptation. And so only as we reckon or count on the fact, these, these two facts, one that we're dead to sin and that it, doesn't, it no longer reigns over me, it doesn't have mastery over me. Once you become saved, you no longer have to sin. If you sin, it's because you choose to sin and you choose to sin because of combination of, I don't know, failure to recognize who God is, who Christ is, uh, bad habits, uh, sinful thoughts that can creep in unexpected, the world's uh, system, the satanic world system. The, the fact is that you are dead to sin and its reign going forward. And second, that you are alive to God, united to him, that is, into Christ who strengthens us. And you can actually keep sin from reigning in your mortal body. doesn't mean you'll ever stop sinning, right? We know from 1 John 1, uh, 8, that, that we will that we do and it's not that that we kind of uh, expect to and so therefore we kind of give in to it we should be resisting and fighting and 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 and, and scrot, scratching and clawing to to prevent ourselves from from getting sucked into and drawn back into some sins that we used to commit but we also recognize at the same time that from time to time we will and and not even that not so much even sins that we are familiar with, but the reality is that you can overcome a particular sin and by the grace of God, that's finally relieved or released and you gain victory over that, you know, by and large. But the reality is too that the holier you grow, the more you begin to understand who you are, who Christ is, you begin to recognize how much further you have to go yet. And that's a blessing. That's, that, that, that's, a, that's a grace that God gives us so that even while we gain victory over certain sins in our lives, in our walk, new ones, new, new attitudes, new heart thoughts and, and feelings begin to percolate out and, and reveal themselves. And we recognize I still have a long ways to go. And so you roll up your sleeves and you carry on that particular fight and you carry on that particular walk. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, to realize this takes away from us that old sense of hopelessness which we have all known and felt because of this terrible power of sin. And the question is, how does, how does that work? It works this way. I lose my sense of hopelessness because I can say to myself that not only am I no longer under the dominion of sin, which is a fact, it's true, but I am under the dominion of another power that nothing can frustrate. That too is true, but we don't see that. We don't embrace it as much as we embrace, embrace the fact that we're no longer enslaved to sin. I think the disconnect happens when you come out of bondage and slavery to sin and, you, and you're relieved and, you're, and released from that, you come to saving faith, hallelujah, what a savior. And it's a kind of a stumble, a fall, a, a, a failure to get the, back, the next piece. It's not only do I, don't I have to sin, but because of who I am in Christ, I no longer 
have to sin. I've, I've got the power to resist that. I've got the power, and God has drawn me unto himself, and he's going to reveal sin in my heart, in my life, in my, in my thoughts, all those things. But he's going to help me become more like Christ. And that's, I think, so many of us fail on that side of it even as we begin to recognize more and more, except intellectually, you know, I don't have to sin anymore. I know that I don't have to sin. And I know I'm a louse for sinning and, and I feel bad for doing it and I still do it from time to time and woe is me and, you know, all that. But you've got to get the second half. That's so important. However weak I may be, he says, it is the power of God that is working in me. It's Martin Lloyd-Jones. And this is not a theoretical teaching, something to be placed on the library shelves of our minds and admired. This truth isn't something that we just need to understand or hear or read in the, in the Bible and then just say, isn't that just great? Isn't that great that, that, that because of who Christ is and what he's done in my life and, and the fact that I'm, the bondage to sin has been broken, that I've got access to all this power and that I can be a different person and that God can be alive and I can be a witness for Christ. The fact is that to count on the fact that we are dead to sin and alive to God is something that we must do actively. It's not passive. It's not something that just kind of just sits out there as, yeah, it's available. If it's, I, could, I could do it if I wanted to. But the fact is to do it we must form the habit of continually realizing that we are dead to sin and alive to God. We need to form a habit of that. You can't just talk about it, can't just think about it, but practically speaking, we do this when by faith in God's word, we resist sins, temptations, and advances. And we have to count on the fact that we are alive to God when, by faith, we look to Christ for the, all the power that we need to do the resisting. Faith, however, must always be based on fact. And Romans 6.11, as we just read, is a fact for us. So we've got, we've got this belief, we've got this knowledge, we've read Romans 6, and, and we see that we're dead to sin, that we're alive to Christ, but the fact is that we need to think about that continuously. And particularly when we're in the midst of being tempted by sin, being tripped up by our old thought patterns, our bad, bad uh, habits of thinking. And a second implication of being alive to God is that he has given us his Holy Spirit to live within us. And again, that's something that we read about in the Scripture we believe the scripture, we believe the Bible, but there's a reality that we sometimes just don't see, we don't feel, we don't recognize the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And, and actually, this is not a second result, but it's another way of looking at our union, if you will, with Christ, for his spirit is the agent of this union. It is he who gives spiritual life to us and the strength to live that particular life. And it is the Spirit of God who works in us that we may decide and act according to God's good purposes, according to Philippians 2.13. So when we, when we think and we desire 
to do good things, holy things, pleasing things to God. And when we fight against sin and the corruption and the deceit of our flesh, that's actually the Holy Spirit at work within us. Thanks be to God. Because in and of ourselves, in our own power, we don't have that. We just don't. We're just naturally wired and inclined and we've got bad thought patterns. We've got bad personal habits. We have poor, poor spiritual hygiene, so to speak. We need to form new good habits. And so it's really, really important to recognize, as Paul said, that God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. And therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but rather God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. So here, Paul connects the giving of the Holy Spirit with our living a holy life. The two go hand in hand. If you're saved, you ought to be transitioning out of bad thinking, poor habits, sin, besetting sin. You should be transitioning into Christ-likeness. And that is part of what we're called to do. He is called the Holy Spirit, and he is sent primarily to make us holy. He is a Holy Spirit. He's dwelling within us. And so he indwells us for the purpose of drawing us into Christ-likeness, into making a, conforming us more into his life and to the character of God. And the connection between these two thoughts, the Holy Spirit and holy life is also found in other passages. For example, we are told to flee sexual immorality because our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, right? In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18-19. We are also told that we are controlled not by our sinful nature, but by the Spirit if the Spirit of God dwells within us, according to Romans 8. Verse 9, we read, uh, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature in Galatians 5.16. So why do we have the Holy Spirit living within us to strengthen us toward holiness? It is because we are alive to God. We've been transformed. We've been regenerated. The Holy Spirit now dwells within us. We are no longer living under we are, we are no longer living under the reign of sin, but we are now living under the reign of God, under Christ. And who he unites us, the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ and gives us the power to be more like him. The Holy Spirit strengthens us to holiness, first by enabling us to see our need of holiness. That's critical. If we're content in our own habits and the way we think and whatever we're never we're not going to be motivated or encouraged or stimulated to to move on and to become more holy and pleasing to to god and so he enlightens us the holy spirit enlightens our understanding so that we can begin to see god god's standard of holiness and then he causes us to become aware of specific areas of sin in our lives and the bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? That's Jeremiah 17, 9. And no one can understand and expose the heart. No one, not even ourselves, can expose the heart except for the Holy Spirit himself. So even Christians then taking in the teaching of the Bible can be deceived about their own sins. Even as you're reading the Bible, you can still feel like, yeah, I got that one. Yep, 
got that, got that. We somehow feel that consent to the teaching of Scripture is equivalent to obedience. In other words, you recognize it. I intellectually acknowledge the fact that I ought not to be, I shouldn't lie, check, I know that. I shouldn't get angry, right? Be angry, but sin not. You can get angry, but under certain circumstances, check. Shouldn't be lusting, check. Shouldn't be addicted to anything, check. I know all these things. It's clear in the Bible. I hear that every Sunday. Pastor Howard does a wonderful job of expositing the Word and pointing out what the Word and what God is telling us and commanding us to do. Check, 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 check. But the reality is that we're called to more than just mentally affirm or assent to the truths of what the Bible is saying. The fact is that we actually need to understand it, and then we need to obey it. And we may hear the point of an application in a sermon, or perhaps even discover some something really, really exciting, and Ah, oh, man, like in your own personal reading of the Word or de- time of devotion or something like that. And you say, yeah, that's true. That's something I need to act on. That is something that, that I'm feeling really, really convicted about. Absolutely, 100%. But then you tend to let it drop at that point. <laughs> you get distracted. Oh, time to go to work. Oh, the baby's crying. Oh, got to do this, got to do that. And James says that when we do that, when we see what we're supposed to do, when, when, when God, through his Spirit, opens up some truth to our, our hearts and our minds, and we assent to it, that when we do that and we don't carry through on it, we don't obey, what is it then? We deceive ourselves, according to James 1.22. So, as we grow in the Christian life, we face an increasing danger, if you will, of spiritual pride. And I think that that's so true in theologically solid churches, is it not? Like churches like ours, churches like, I don't know, Grace Life, Grace Community Church, John MacArthur, you know, churches that are really theologically solid that we would say, you know, as close as, as to truth as you can possibly get, we face an increasing danger of spiritual pride when what we do is we fill our heads they grow, they grow, they get, they get fed. Our minds, our brains, you know, we're, we're reading, we're hearing, we're, we're, we're spending all our time listening to podcasts and sermons and reading good books and having good conversations and think, think, think and develop, develop and all this stuff. And the reality is that we know all these correct doctrines, the right methods and the proper do's and don'ts because we are hearing that, we're being uh, instructed and we're being encouraged, but we may not see the poverty of our own spiritual character. We may not see our critical and unforgiving spirit or our habit of backbiting or our tendency to judge others. Um, We may become like the Laodiceans of whom the Lord said, you say, you know, I am rich, right? I'm theologically rich. I am so blessed here in North America in this particular church and this time. I've acquired wealth. I've acquired a wealth of knowledge and theological goodness, and I don't need a thing, right? We are, and we could say that, hallelujah. That's a good thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, right? Revelation 3.17. David was just like this. David was a man after God. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. Then he had Uriah, her husband, killed in battle. 
murdered him in order to cover up his sin with her? Was he repentant and humbled over this, his particular despicable acts? Nope. Oblivious. It was like, I don't know. I'm the king. Being king is good. I get what I want, when I want, how I want. In fact, he's ready to judge another man for far lesser crime and to condemn him to death. Right? Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. And how could he do this? Because he was spiritually blind. David, spiritually blind in that particular moment. It was not until Nathan the prophet said to David, you are the man in that particular story that he was relating, that David was actually able to see the, the, the tragedy, the, the, the depravity, the heinousness of the acts that he had committed. It is the Holy Spirit's ministry to make us see that we are poverty-stricken because of our sins. He comes to us and he says, you are the man. So the Holy Spirit condemns us. The Holy Spirit confronts us. And the whole, that's not all the Holy Spirit does. We know that the Holy Spirit builds us up. He illuminates us. He gives us power. And he gives, I mean, the, the, the fruit of the Spirit is, is a blessing. But at the same time, the fact is that the Holy Spirit also has another purpose in our lives. He calls us to repentance. He calls us to obedience. He calls us to Christ-likeness. And so that's really, really important. Even though such a message um, the Holy Spirit opens the, the, the inner recesses of our hearts and enables us to see the moral cesspools that are hidden there. And this is where he begins his ministry of making us holy. So he convicts us, which is a good thing, because we ought to be convicted when we're not pleasing God. So the natural result then of seeing God's standard and our sinfulness is the awakening within us of a desire to be holy. This should be the natural response. It should be that when we see ourselves poor and naked and needy, we should come to the Lord in, in dependence and humility and say, I need you. I, I, I'm so, I'm, I'm wretched. You, you, I am the man. I, I'm convicted of that. And that is good because this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit when he makes us holy, when we are sorry for our sins with a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that's the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts and our lives. And we can say with David, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Right? That's the, in Psalm 51 where, where David's psalm of his, his uh, confession, if you will. And Paul said, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose in Philippians 2.13. So before we act, before we actually take action on anything, we have to will it. We have to want it. We, need to, we have to purpose it in our minds and in our hearts before we actually start doing something. And to will means to desire and to resolve to do it. And so when the Holy Spirit shows us our sinfulness... He does not do this to lead us into despair, to bring us down and, oh, you know, going around and, and full of defeated or whatever, but rather he's doing that to lead us to holiness. And he does this by creating within our hearts a hatred of sin and a desire for holiness. So only one, only you and I, 
who has a strong desire to be holy will ever persevere in the painfully slow and difficult task of pursuing holiness. There are just too many failures. The habits of our old nature and the attacks of the satanic world system are too strong for us to persevere unless the Holy Spirit is at work within us to create a desire for holiness. And the Holy Spirit creates this desire not only by showing us our sins, but also by showing us God's standards of holiness. So he convicts and he works in our own hearts and our own lives and our minds, but he uses the scripture, the word of God, to reveal to us what God's holy standards are. And as we read and we study the scripture or hear them taught, we're captivated by the moral beauty of God's standards of holiness. And that's, that's one of the reasons that we attend church. We listen to sermons or podcasts and other sermons on sermon audio or whatever, YouTube. Even though the standard may seem far beyond us, we do recognize and respond to that which is holy and righteous and good. We should have this hunger, this longing for wanting to be filled with good, wholesome, spiritual food. And even though we fail so often in our inner being, we can still yet delight in God's law. So here then is another distinction that we must make between what God does and what we must do, right? Coming circling full circle to what we began almost at the start of the study. And there's this idea that if the Holy Spirit uses Scripture to show us our need and to stimulate within us a desire to actually become more holy, then doesn't it follow that we must be in God's Word on a consistent basis? Should we not go to the Word, whether to hear it preached or to do our own study? With prayer, we need to depend upon the Holy Spirit to uh, empower us, to illuminate our minds, the minds of, of our hearts, and that's what we need to do. We need to be searched. We need to pray that God will search us and try us and know us, right? According to Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. And after the Holy Spirit has enabled us to see our need and create and has created within us a desire for holiness, there remains something more that we yet must do. And that is that he must give us spiritual strength then to live a holy life. Paul said, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature, according to Galatians 5.16. And to live by the Spirit is to live both in obedience to and dependence on the Spirit. So there's a part where we obey, we move, we actually undertake to, to do the steps, we actually physically open up our Bibles. Daily is, is the desired standard to some degree, whether it's to read a verse, whether it's to read a paragraph, whether it's to read a chapter, but you need to be in the Word. You need to do your part, and then you need to depend on the Holy Spirit to help you to, and, and pray that He will step in and give you the, the power and, and the initiative that you require and, and so that you can get this balance in our wills expressed by obedience to taking those first steps and our faith that is expressed by our dependence to God in prayer. And no one overcomes the corruptions of this heart except by the enabling strength of the Spirit of God. 
And Peter said that God has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in this world. And Peter writes that in 2 Peter 1 verse 4. And through participation in the divine nature, we do escape corruption. And this participation is through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so we express our dependence in the Holy Spirit for holy life in these two ways. And I think we're at the end of our time. So we're going to leave it at that. And Lord willing, we'll, we'll pick it up at some point or you can pick this up. And, and, and again, I would commend to you that you get into the word, um, that, you, that you research these things and that you embrace this truth that we need to depend upon the Holy Spirit and also be obedient and take action ourselves. Let's just close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for the fact that you have provided all that we need for life and godliness, both through your word and through your spirit. And, of course, through the sacrificial atoning of our sin by Christ on the cross. Thank you so much for his obedience, for the fact that he loved us so much that even yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you for this wonderful gift. Thank you for the blessing that we are recipients of in and through uh, your word and through your Holy Spirit acting within us in power. Please encourage us, motivate us, empower us to live lives that are holy and pleasing to you. Don't help us to be doers of the word, not merely hearers, and thus deceiving ourselves. Father, we want to be your children. That is our heart's desire. Help us to become ever more pleasing in your sight and help us to be the kind of people, the witnesses to this fallen world that uh, would be light in the darkness around us. Help us, we pray, to that end for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.